great. You've been loading up on things from Walmart? Yeah, I used my new Capital One Walmart Rewards card. It earns unlimited 5% back on everything I buy from Walmart online. Say what? 5% back. Say what? 5% back. Say what now? 5% back. back. With what? The Capital One Walmart Rewards card. Earn unlimited rewards, including 5% back at Walmart online on top of Walmart's everyday low prices. What's in your wallet? Terms and exclusions apply. Capital One USA NA. I'm Zanny Minton Beddoes. You're listening to Editor's Picks. Each week, we choose three of the key stories from the paper. Each piece offers authoritative insight into the international news stories that shape the world we live in. Now over to one of my colleagues to tell you what's in store in this edition. Thanks, Annie. It's Thursday the 19th of September 2019. I'm Rob Gifford. Coming up, this week's issue is devoted to climate change. The processes that cause it are built into the foundations of the world economy and of geopolitics. To decarbonize an economy is not a simple subtraction. It requires a near-complete overhaul. Next, Israel's Prime Minister has lost his majority, the hope of immunity and the aura of invincibility. King Bibi's crown is slipping. And finally, why Russia is ambivalent about global warming. That's just a sample of the stories on offer in the newspaper. With a subscription, you can read or listen to all of what we do, so please subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. That's economist.com slash radio offer. First up, climate change must be tackled urgently and clear-headedly. From one year to the next, you cannot feel the difference. As the decades stack up, though, the story becomes clear. The stripes on our cover represent the world's average temperature in every year since the mid-19th century. Dark blue years are cooler and red ones warmer than the average in 1971 to 2000. The cumulative change jumps out. The world is about one degree Celsius hotter than when this newspaper was young. To represent this span of human history as a set of simple stripes may seem reductive. These are years which saw world wars, technological innovation, trade on an unprecedented scale and a staggering creation of wealth. But those complex histories and the simplifying stripes share a common cause. The changing climate of the planet and the remarkable growth in human numbers and riches both stem from the combustion of billions of tonnes of fossil fuel – to produce industrial power, electricity, transport, heating and, more recently, computation. That the changing climate touches everything and everyone should be obvious, as it should be that the poor and marginalised have most to lose when the weather turns against them. What is less obvious, but just as important, is that because the processes that force climate change are built into the foundations of the world economy and of geopolitics, measures to check climate change have to be similarly wide-ranging and all-encompassing. To decarbonise an economy is not a simple subtraction. It requires a near-complete overhaul. To some, including many of the millions of young idealists who, as The Economist went to press, were preparing for a global climate strike, and many of those who will throng the streets of New York during next week's UN General Assembly, 
This overhaul requires nothing less than the gelding or uprooting of capitalism. After all, the system grew up through the use of fossil fuels in ever greater quantities, and the market economy has so far done very little to help. Almost half the atmosphere's extra human-made carbon dioxide was put there after the turn of the 1990s, when scientists sounded the alarm and governments said they would act. In fact, to conclude that climate change should mean shackling capitalism would be wrong-headed and damaging. There is an immense value in the vigour, innovation and adaptability that free markets bring to the economies that took shape over that striped century. Market economies are the wells that produce the response climate change requires. Competitive markets properly incentivized and politicians serving a genuine popular thirst for action can do more than any other system to limit the warming that can be forestalled and cope with that which cannot. This special edition of The Economist is not all about the carbon climate crisis. But articles on the crisis and what can be done about it are to be found across all this week's sections. In this, our reporting mirrors the world. Whether it is in ensuring a future for the Panama Canal or weaning petrol-head presidents off their refinery habit, climate is never the whole story. Other things matter to Manhattan stockholders and Malawian smallholders, but climate change is an increasingly dangerous context for all their worlds. To understand that context, it is important to understand all the things that climate change is not. It is not the end of the world. Humankind is not poised, teetering on the edge of extinction. The planet itself is not in peril. Earth is a tough old thing and will survive. And though much may be lost, most of the wondrous life that makes Earth unique, as far as astronomers can yet tell, will persist. Climate change is, though, a dire threat to countless people, one that is planetary in scope, if not in its absolute stakes. It will displace tens of millions at the very least. It will disrupt farms on which billions rely. It will dry up wells and water mains. It will flood low-lying places, and as time goes by, higher-standing ones too. True, it will also provide some opportunities, at least in the near term. But the longer humanity takes to curb emissions, the greater the dangers and sparser the benefits, and the larger the risk of some truly catastrophic surprises. The scale of the implications underlines another thing that climate change is not. It is not just an environmental problem alongside all the others, and absolutely not one that can be solved by hair-shirt self-abnegation. Change by the people who are most alarmed will not be enough. What is also needed is change in the lives of those who do not yet much care. Climate is a matter for the whole of government. It cannot be shunted off to the Minister for the Environment, whom nobody can name. And that leads to a third thing that climate change is not. It is not a problem that can be put off for a few decades. It is here and now. It is already making extreme events like Hurricane Dorian more likely. Its losses are already there, and often mourned, on drab landscapes where the glaciers have died, and on reefs bleached of their coral colours. Delay means that mankind will suffer more harm and face a vastly more costly scramble to make up for lost time. What to do is already well understood, and one vital task is capitalism's speciality, making people better off. 
Adaptation, including sea defences, desalination plants, drought-resistant crops, will cost a lot of money. That is a particular problem for poor countries, which risk a vicious cycle where the impacts of climate change continuously rob them of the hope for development. International agreements stress the need to support the poorest countries in their efforts to adapt to climate change and to grow wealthy enough to need less help. Here, the rich world is shirking its duties. Yet, even if it were to fulfil them, by no means all the effects of climate change can be adapted away. The further change goes, the less adaptation will be able to offset it. That leads to the other need for capital, the reduction of emissions. With plausible technological improvements and lots of investment, it is possible to produce electricity grids that need no carbon dioxide-emitting power stations. Road transport can be electrified, though long-haul shipping and air travel are harder. Industrial processes can be retooled, those that must emit greenhouse gases can capture them. It is foolish to think all this can be done in 10 years or so, as demanded by many activists and some American presidential hopefuls. But today's efforts, which are too lax to keep the world from 2 or even 3 degrees of warming, can be vastly improved. Forcing firms to reveal their climate vulnerabilities will help increasingly worried investors allocate capital appropriately. A robust price on carbon could stimulate new forms of emission-cutting innovations that planners cannot yet imagine. Powerful as that tool is, though, the decarbonisation it brings will need to be accelerated through well-targeted regulations. Electorates should vote for both. The problem with such policies is that the climate responds to the overall level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, not to a single country's contribution to it. If one government drastically reduces its own emissions but others do not, the gallant reducer will, in general, see no reduced harm. This is not always entirely true. Germany's over-generous renewable energy subsidies spurred a worldwide boom in solar panel production that made them cheaper for everyone, thus reducing emissions abroad. Britain's thriving offshore wind farms may achieve something similar but it is true enough in most cases to be a huge obstacle. The obvious fix will be unpalatable to many. The UN's climate talks treat 193 countries as equals, providing a forum in which all are heard. But three-quarters of emissions come from just 12 economies. In some of those, including the United States, it is possible to imagine younger voters in liberal democracies demanding a political realignment on climate issues and a new interest in getting others to join in. For a club composed of a dozen great and middling but mucky powers to thrash out a mini-lateral deal would leave billions excluded from questions that could shape their destiny. The participants would need new systems of trade preference and other threats and bribes to keep each other in line. But they might break the impasse, pushing enough of the world onto a steeper mitigation trajectory to benefit all and be widely emulated. The damage that climate change will end up doing depends on the human response over the next few decades. Many activists on the left cannot imagine today's liberal democracies responding to the challenge on an adequate scale. They call for new limits to the pursuit of individual prosperity and sweeping government control over investment, strictures some of them would welcome under any circumstances. Meanwhile, on the right... 
Some look away from the incipient disaster in an I'm-all-right-jack way and so ignore their duties to the bulk of humanity. If the spirit of enterprise that first tapped the power of fossil fuels in the Industrial Revolution is to survive, the states in which it has most prospered must prove those attitudes wrong. They must be willing to transform the machinery of the world economy without giving up on the values out of which that economy was born. Some claim that capitalism's love of growth inevitably pits it against a stable climate. This newspaper believes them wrong, but climate change could nonetheless be the death knell for economic freedom along with much else. If capitalism is to hold its place, it must up its game. Capital One has a fresh take on banking. Now you can open a new savings account in about five minutes and earn five times the national average. Banking with Capital One means five times the savings toward your dream honeymoon, or five times the savings toward your family's ultimate vacation, even five times the savings toward just feeling good about saving. It's time to make your savings goals come true. This is Banking Reimagined. What's in your wallet? Capital One and a member FDIC. Next, is the reign of Bibi Netanyahu coming to an end? His devotees call him King Bibi, but the crown is slipping. Twice this year, Benjamin Netanyahu, Israel's prime minister, has gone to the country to ask voters for a clear majority. Twice they have denied him one. With almost all the votes counted from the ballot on September 17th, Mr Netanyahu's Likud party was two seats behind Blue and White, a centrist alliance led by Benny Gantz, a former military chief. Mr Netanyahu's coalition of right-wing and religious parties fell six short of a majority, a larger shortfall than at the previous election in April. Mr Netanyahu still hopes to cling to power, as Mr Gantz too has no clear path to a governing coalition – Yet the era of King Bibi is surely coming to a close. Having lost his majority, Mr Netanyahu has lost almost all hope of obtaining immunity from prosecution on three counts of alleged corruption, and he has lost the aura of invincibility given by four terms and 13 years in power. Liberals in Israel and around the world may dare to believe that, at last, Mr Netanyahu's brand of ethno-nationalist politics can be defeated. Israel now has a chance to return to a more sane democratic politics, but only a chance. Much will depend on how the coalition horse-trading plays out. By nosing ahead, Mr Gantz has the better claim to try to form a cabinet— but Mr Netanyahu remains caretaker Prime Minister until another government is formed. Even if he somehow stays in office, he will be much diminished. He will have to share power with his enemies, whether Mr Gantz or, worse, Avigdor Lieberman, an ex-aide who split with him and thwarted him. The best Mr Netanyahu can hope for is a government of national unity, in which he and Mr Gantz take turns as leader. Even so... He will be vulnerable to prosecution and abandonment by allies. In March, this newspaper described Mr Netanyahu's tenure as a parable of modern populism. He embraced muscular nationalism and elite bashing long before these became a global force, 
though he adopted more sensible economic policies. During the campaign, he reverted to type. Although, after 13 years in power, he can hardly claim to be the underdog, he cast himself as the champion of the people against the elite. He claimed that policemen and prosecutors dogging him were leftists, even though he appointed many of them. The journalists who questioned him were denounced for purveying false news, though Israel Hayom, the biggest free sheet, is so loyal that Israelis call it Bibiton. Iton is Hebrew for newspaper. Mr. Netanyahu sowed distrust of Arab citizens. He accused Arab parties of fraud. A chatbot message on his Facebook page, since withdrawn, accused them of trying to destroy us all. As ever, he highlighted the threat of Iran and his friendship with President Donald Trump, who recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Above all, Mr. Netanyahu sought to mobilize his right-wing base, promising to annex part of the occupied West Bank if re-elected. None of these tactics worked, and some backfired. The threat to place cameras in polling stations, supposedly to deter Arab voter fraud, instead provoked a large Arab turnout. What were once acts of bravura from the man known as the magician now look like tired old stunts. His potential replacement, Mr. Gantz, presents himself as a warrior who wants peace, but has been worryingly vague about his policies. Do not expect him to rush into a deal with the Palestinians. A two-state peace deal with a Palestinian state alongside Israel may seem desirable to most of the world, but appeals to only about half of Israelis. And many of them think it is unachievable right now. Moderate Palestinians are too weak and the radicals strong enough to spoil any accord. Most Israelis reckon the conflict can only be managed, not solved. At least under Mr. Gantz, some sort of dialogue with Palestinians might resume, and the threat of unilateral annexation will recede. Perhaps there can be partial deals. If Mr. Gantz makes a difference, it is more likely to be to the tenor of Israeli politics, whose drift towards intolerant ethno-nationalism he might arrest. That said, what brought Mr. Netanyahu down was not a victory of the peace camp, but a betrayal among nationalists. Mr. Lieberman, formerly Mr. Netanyahu's chief of staff, has become Israel's kingmaker. His breakaway party, Israel Beitenu, Israel Our Home, made bigger gains than any other by promising not to join any government unless it introduced secular reforms, which would in turn break Likud's alliance with ultra-religious parties. That is welcome, but Israel Beitenu is hardly liberal. It is more rabidly nationalist than Likud, having often led efforts to delegitimize Arab parties, and Mr. Lieberman has been fending off accusations of corruption for as long as Mr. Netanyahu has. It is tempting to conclude that the parable has a hopeful moral. Populism has found its limits. The institutions of liberal democracy can stand up to it. But the weakening of one kind of populism may simply have strengthened another. The work of embattled liberals in Israel and elsewhere is far from done. And finally, unfortunately, some Russians reckon global warming is not all bad. 
First came fires that turned the Siberian skies into a wall of solid smoke stretching for thousands of kilometers. Then came a drought that sucked the Lena River nearly dry, leaving boats marooned in the mud. It has been an arduous summer in Yakutia, an icy republic in Russia's far east. Add to that the fact that the regional capital, Yakutsk, stands upon thawing permafrost that warps roads and buildings, and climate inaction becomes hard to defend. I've lived here my whole life. I remember what the winter used to be like, and what it's like now, says Sardana Avkacentova, Yakutsk's mayor. I can confirm that global warming is a problem. Some 1,000 kilometres, that's 600 miles, to the north, on the Republic's Arctic coast, the dying town of Tixi would beg to differ. From its frozen vantage point, warming has been a boon. Arctic sea ice is now receding at an alarming rate. In 1980, it covered 7.9 million square kilometres, that's 3 million square miles, at its summer minimum, whereas last year it dipped to only 4.6 million. So the Northern Sea Route, or NSR, through once impassable waters, has emerged as a potential global shipping artery. The Russian government has pledged to direct some 735 billion rubles, that's $11 billion, over the next six years toward its development. The route holds the promise of cutting delivery times between Asia and Europe by weeks, compared with going by the much longer Suez Canal route. With Russia poised to take a healthy cut for helping the cargo through, Tixi has seen a new military base go up. It is in the running for a 2.5 billion ruble port project. This tension between catastrophe and opportunity has shaped the contours of the climate change debate in the world's fourth largest carbon emitter. Russia has signed but has not ratified the Paris Agreement, making it the only large emitter outside the pact, though President Donald Trump has said he intends to withdraw America from its strictures. It is not only the world's second largest producer of oil and gas combined, it also possesses ice-locked coasts and a vast underpopulated hinterland, which, some argue, could use the boost brought by a few degrees of warming. At an Arctic forum in 2017, Vladimir Putin called climate change a factor that bolsters optimism, adding that it provides more favourable conditions for economic activity in this region. He once quipped that climate change would enable Russians to spend less money on fur coats. Yet the downsides are proving harder to ignore. As Mr Putin himself acknowledged at a G20 summit this summer, Russia is warming more than twice as rapidly as the world's average rate, and is experiencing a full range of climate change-connected calamities for itself. The Ministry of Economic Development has accelerated climate policy-making. A national adaptation plan is in the works, and bills introducing carbon taxes and other mechanisms to regulate greenhouse gas emissions have also been drafted. Earlier this year, Russia's main industrial lobby dropped its opposition to the Paris Agreement. Russia's companies understood that they lose more by remaining on the sidelines than by joining, says Mikhail Yulkin, head of the lobby's Climate and Environment Committee. The economy minister, Maxim Marshyekin, tells The Economist that ratification is in the works. Rumours say it may come this autumn, though probably not in time for the UN Climate Action Summit that opens in New York on September 23rd. Ratification, though, will have minimal practical impact. Russia's emissions reduction pledge for the Paris Agreement uses as a benchmark its levels in 1990, a year before the collapse of Soviet heavy industry. 
This means that cutting emissions by 25-30%, to 30%, which Russia promised to do by 2030, requires virtually no reduction from today's less industrial levels. There is little pressure from the citizenry to do more. Although 55% of the Russian population believes that humans are causing climate change, that number has changed little over the past decade, and climate change is on the periphery of Russian discourse. The worsening state of the environment came in ninth place when Russians were asked to name their main concerns, whereas concerns about the economy and corruption dominated. Even Russia's embattled opposition has ignored the issue. The manifesto of Alexei Navalny, its leader, does not contain a single mention of climate change. Although young people have come out in their thousands to protest against corruption, Arshak Makachyan, a 22-year-old violinist who launched the Russian brand of Fridays for Future, an international group of students demanding action against climate change, reckons that the movement has just 50 to 100 active members in Russia. Russia's leaders, in turn, see decarbonisation as a prospect too distant to care about. The government's in-house think tank reckons that global carbon dioxide emissions will not decline until after 2040, and that the world's appetite for Russia's hydrocarbons will last that long too. If Russia goes greener, it may not be in a way that Western environmentalists will like. It has a flourishing domestic nuclear industry and a well-stocked foreign order book. Mr Putin recently raised eyebrows with an attack on wind turbines over the harm they do to birds and, he said, worms. They shake, causing worms to come out of the soil, he said. This is not a joke. Instead, warmer temperatures tantalise with the prospect of easier access to natural resource wealth, an expanded farm belt, a reduced winter heating bill, and tolls from the northern sea route. Yet those benefits are hardly certain. The number of ships taking the NSR remains a fraction of those taking more established paths, such as the Suez Canal. Tapping its potential will require big investment. Though land in the north may become arable, it will be farther from the agricultural know-how, infrastructure and logistical base of traditional farming regions. Those established farmlands, meanwhile, will have to adjust the crops they plant and cope with ever more frequent droughts. The bad will be there no matter what. While the good requires major efforts, says Vladimir Katsov, director of Russia's Voikov Geophysical Observatory. Unstable weather patterns are already on the rise. In 2000, Russia's weather service recorded 141 severe weather phenomena, which it defines as intense weather conditions, from heat waves to heavy winds, that threaten human safety and can cause significant economic damage. Last year, there were 580. Frequent severe weather will trigger alarming consequences across Russia's vast territory, its environment ministry warns. Modern-day infectious diseases will spread and ancient ones may return, as thawing permafrost exposes old burial sites. Arctic infrastructure will crumble as the ground becomes softer. In Yakutsk, locals have already taken to calling one tilting nine-storey apartment block built on thawing ice their own leaning tower of Pisa. The floods that have devastated the Russian Far East in recent years will become more common. So, too, will forest fires like the ones this summer that struck Siberia. Nature is sending us little signals, Miss Avkacentova says. Russia and the world would be wise to notice. Thanks for listening to Editor's Picks. I'm Rob Gifford, and in London, this is The Economist.
Is building wealth one of your goals for 2020? If so, you're in luck. Diversi Fund is mixing tech with real estate in order to bring superior investment opportunities to everyone. Our new fund is SEC qualified to accept investments from all investors, accredited or not. With one investment on our online platform, you'll own a portfolio of institutional-grade commercial real estate assets, all without lifting a finger. Visit diversifund.com slash economist to learn more and start investing today. You can make this year all about taking your wealth and your portfolio to the next level. One more time, visit diversifund.com slash economist and use the code economist when you sign up to receive a $20 gift card after you make your first investment.